This is Victoria of TheUnleashedHeart.com, and you're listening to Grieving Voices, a podcast for hurting hearts who desire to be heard, or anyone who wants to learn how to better support loved ones experiencing loss. As a 30-plus year griever and advanced grief recovery method specialist, I know how badly the conversation around grief needs to change. Through this podcast, I aim to educate grievers and non-grievers alike, spread hope, and inspire compassion toward those hurting. Lastly, by providing my heart with ears and this platform, grievers have the opportunity to share their wisdom and stories of loss and resiliency. How about we talk about grief like we talk about the weather? Let's get started. Thank you for tuning in to Grieving Voices. If this is your first time listening, thank you. And if you've been listening for a while now, thank you as well. And welcome back. Today, my guest is Brent Scarpo. He has over 30 years of experience as a national speaker, life coach, producer, writer, director, and casting director in Hollywood. He has worked on such well-known films as the Shawshank Redemption, That Thing You Do, Air Force One, and Matilda. Additionally, Brent has presented thousands of programs to high schools, colleges, and corporate America, numbering well over 1 million participants. In addition, Brent was featured on the Today Show Storytelling Writing Contest, Everyone Has a Story, where his story, The Red Balloon, was chosen out of 100,000 entries. The Red Balloon story beautifully depicts the loving relationship of Brent and his mother and their fascination with life after death. Through many conversations, he and his mother created a plan to prove that, in fact, there was life after death, the basis of the Red Balloon story, which has now become his book, The Red Balloon, How to Transform Your Life, One Inspirational Story at a Time. Additionally, Brent is a life coach specializing in millennials, where he takes his years as a former casting director and marries it to his life coaching career and success in such programs as the 10 Life Coaching Lessons I Learned, Casting the Shawshank Redemption. Thank you so much for your time and being here today. Well, thank you for that wonderful introduction. I so appreciate being here and thank you for all that you do. Yes, thank you for your time. Let's, I guess, start with the red balloon and how how this all came to be and about your mom and the loss of your mom. Yeah, so my mother, um, I'm an intuitive life coach. Uh, intuitive life coach is somebody that has a high level, or we all have an intuition, but I've actually worked on it. So, you know, it's like anything else in the body, it's a muscle that, you know, once you flex it, once you strengthen it, it just becomes, you know, stronger and stronger and stronger. So uh, my mom and I are best friends. Uh, she's a single mom that raised three kids by herself. Her name is Betty Scarpo. And I woke up at three o'clock in the morning one night and uh, I, I just, I got a message. I got a message that my mother had had cancer. And she had just moved from Warren, Pennsylvania to California, where I was living. She lived a few blocks away from me, actually. And I I was so overwhelmed by that feeling that I didn't even go to bed for the rest of the the morning. So about 8 o'clock, I called her and I said, hey, mom. I said, when's the last time you've had a physical, right? I didn't tell her about the dream. And she said, oh, five years ago when I left Pennsylvania to come here. And, you know, we, especially I think with women, we have this ability to take care of everybody else but ourselves. And I was like, mom, you've got it. Look, I'm making an appointment for you, right? Well, we made the appointment with my doctor and everything was 
hunky-dory except for her chest x-ray and that's when we found a dark mass the size of a half dollar uh and unfortunately my mother had lung cancer so i listened to that voice i listened to that intuition right as an intuitive life coach you know i do programming with clients to help them create the best life possible the best versions of themselves possible and so i spent about two and a half years as my mother's primary caregiver i told her her only job was to you know eradicate uh cancer and so you know i was really grateful because the doctor said boy had you not come you know you you probably would have would have had a lot less time and so you just kind of went on this journey and then, uh, you know, it's interesting. My mother was diagnosed in the end of 95. She had all of 96. And then on, on January 26, 1997, 13 days after her 59th birthday and six days after my 33rd birthday, my mother unfortunately passed away. Uh, she, her cancer just metastasized her brain. We did hospice, which is the greatest gift to mankind i highly recommend for anybody who knows that they have to make a transition that you try to choose hospice as the way to make that transition and um years and years and years before that uh, my mother and i again we were really good friends we always talked about things very philosophical we'd have our breakfast what we call our weekly breakfasts or lunch and i take her out and we just talk so we talked about death and dying something that people really don't talk about. And I think we need to talk about that's why I said to you earlier, I'm so grateful for what it is that you're doing because people don't necessarily tie something your top 10 though in the last couple of years with COVID, we've almost been forced to talk about this. And so I remember, um, my mother's one of her favorite bands is the Beatles and John Lennon, unfortunately had just been, um, assassinated and i remember looking at the new york times and they had talked about how yoko ono and he decided that they were going to come up with a sign so whoever would transition first would bring that sign back and to them it was a yellow handkerchief so i just happened to read the article to my mom and my mom goes we should do that i'm like we should she's like yeah i was like oh I said, okay. I said, well, what, 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 how do we do? What are we going to do? She said, well, you know, let's pick a sign. We're just going to, you and I, that's it. And uh, let's just say that, you know, the person is responsible for bringing it back to the other person. It means that everything we've talked about, that there is life after death, that there is a higher power of some sort, that there is an essence of who it is that you are as far as your soul is concerned when it leaves this earthly body is all true. I said, okay. And so we decided on a red balloon. And primarily because when I was in second grade, there's this wonderful French film um, uh, called uh, La Rouge Balloon. And it won an Oscar. It's phenomenal. And I said, let's just do a red balloon. She said, okay. And she said, but, and this is my mother. She said, it has to show up within 24 hours of the person's death. It's like none of this a month from now, six years from now, six months. No, 24 hours. I was like, Okay, let's let's do that. So we had always had this in the backbone of our mind. We never shared it with anybody. And then, as my mother was uh, entering her transitional phase in hospice, you know, her, my grandmother came out, my sister and brother, and you know, I kind of remembered it. Uh, and I, you know, finally, as we were getting closer, I thought I better set everybody down and kind of tell them what we did, you know, X amount of years ago. 
just in case I'm not there when it happens, you know, uh, the last thing I need is, you know, my grandmother who was 82 at the time to have a red balloon appear in front of her, her have a heart attack. And I got two dead people on my hands. You know, I mean, it was really, it was getting close. So I sat him down. I said, look, mom and I did this thing. And if anything just kind of quirky happens, the lights go on and off or just, just know it's her. And my, I remember my grandmother saying, well, what was the sign? I said, I, I just can't tell you. I said, I, you know, I just, I just, we've kept it for so many years. So I was in a, doing a play called the boys next door, uh, where I played the part of a schizophrenic. Trust me, I had plenty to draw from. And, uh, I was really wondering, you know, when my mother passed in the middle of the run, you know, I told the director, I said, look, I know the show must go on, but I might have just a few little hiccups. Um, the final night, I, li- I was in Long Beach, California. I was living in Montrose at the time, about a two and a half hour drive. Uh, curtain came down, last show. I'm driving home. It's one o'clock in the morning. It's pouring down rain, I remember, because it doesn't rain in California. And this is back in the days of beepers. Remember those? And my sister paged me, right? And I pulled off to the side of the road because there was no iPhones and uh, called her and she said, mom just passed away. And I was like, wow, you know, the last curtain call. So got home and walked in. My grandmother and my sister were there. And, you know, I'm the oldest of three kids. So, you know, I think a lot of how we grieve is also based on so many factors, whether we're men, whether we're women, whether the oldest child, the youngest child, whether we had a relationship with the person that you passed or didn't, what kind of relationship was it? As you well know, there's so many factors. So, you know, I made sure that they were okay. And then, you know, you're walking over to your dead mother you know, 59 years old, my best friend. And, uh, I just didn't know how I was going to handle this. I, you know, this is my, um, my first experience with this, right. Uh, as I said to many people, my mother's never died before, you know? So I walk over and as it's depicted in the today show, uh, I leaned over to kiss her on the forehead. And as I went to do that, cause she had the hospital sheet up to about her chest I just saw this little flicker of color. I don't know why I noticed it, but I did. And for some reason, I took my hands, I pulled the sheet down, and there imprinted on my mother's blue sweatshirt was this huge bouquet of red balloons. I literally went from pure pain, like I've never felt, and grief that I was about to, to feel, to ecstatic joy. And I was, I was so taken back. I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I said, Oh my God, you did it. And I was screaming around the room. I was like, you did it. Oh my God. Like my mother didn't wait 24 hours. She waited 24 seconds, right? She didn't. I mean, this was her personality. And I remember my grandmother yelling at me, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? I said, the sign, the sign. Remember what I told you about? She said, yes, it's a red balloon. Where did this sweatshirt come from? Right? Because I lived above my sister. My sister um, was the medical caretaker. So she did all the morphine and all that crazy stuff. And my sister said, oh, my God, my mother had been in hospice for about 36 days. And my sister got up that morning and uh, she realized that she hadn't really changed my mother in a few, in about three, four days. And my mother was fastidious about changing her clothes and being clean. So she's like, oh, and she couldn't do it by herself. So she called the nurse. She says, is there any way you can stop by today, you know, uh, this morning and help me, you know, change mom and bathe her? And the nurse like, we're so sorry, but we have a major emergency here at the hospital. I can't. So my sister being my sister uh, got really frustrated. She walked into her bedroom. She picked up the first sweatshirt that was on top of the pile that I brought 
36 days ago from upstairs because she was living with my mom with me. She just wrangled her top off, put that top on, decided that she wasn't going to try and do the bottoms, and that was the shirt. And that night is when my mother passed away. Wow. I know. I had goosebumps as you. <laughs> it's just, you know, and I will say this to you as well. And I, and I shared with you that, you know, my, the red balloon book, it's a life coaching book. It's taken me 10 years to do. It's going to come out on mother's day. It's official mother's day of 2022. Cause I've been working on this, as I say, bottle of wine for 10 years. So when we uncork it, it's going to be delicious <laughs> kind of deal. But uh, I'm going to do an, an added book on, you know, step-by-step instruction on how you can do this as well. Cause one of the things that we did is, just to prove all this, because um, I said to my mom, I said, well, you know, if we can't say anything to anybody, how are they, how are they going to believe us, right? And she said, uh, oh, no, no, she, she brought that up as well. And I said, I have this idea. So I wrote out the scenario, the red balloon and all that. I put it in an envelope. I mailed it to she and I, and then it was post-stamped. Right. So then after we were done and we were going through that grieving process and these are these tokens that you have in an effort to get through the grieving process. I just at one point in time, you know, decided to open it up and share it with everybody in my immediate family. And it's like, look, this is what we did, you know, during the death of John Lennon. And, you know, we've, we've been playing this for years and it was really nice. And, you know, there was a number of witnesses, which I'm really grateful for. And then my mother chose to be cremated and, um, I remember the crematorium saying, is there anything you, you want in with her? You know, I guess you can do certain. And I decided to do that letter. You know, we'd all seen it and people. And so I said, yeah, I, I had this letter that I'd like, to, like, I'd like to give you. So it was, um, it, I don't know. It just gave me a lot of peace. It helped me with my grieving process. It was something that we did very proactive. And the beauty of this is that, you know, this is something anybody can do. Anybody can do. You know, even since then, I, I mean, there's a whole book just on red balloon sightings I've had since 1997, hundreds, you know, whenever I'm feeling a little down, I'll say, mom, you know, if I could get a red balloon, this would be really great. Right. It just happened recently. You know, I was actually on my computer here and I had asked for it a couple of days ago and I turned around and, you know, the TV's on and there's this old show, Hogan's Heroes. Well, it was my mother's favorite, one of her favorite shows. And there's Schultz literally with a bouquet of red balloons in his hand and a teddy bear. And thank God I grabbed my phone and I took a picture of it and I put it on Facebook. I said, for all my red balloon fans, yet again, my mother proves that there is life after death. So it's been a, it's been an amazing journey that I'm really excited about sharing with the overall public next year. Cause the goal is to have the book come out, tour all over the United States, raise monies for charities and, and, and just get people to be, you know, a little bit more at peace with this thing called grieving and death and dying and, and that you can plan for it. You know, people just write a will and they think that's all you can do. No, no, no. There's so much more you can do. And as an end of life doula, I can say too, that you have a lot of choice in that because you can, there are things that you can do or add into the dying process as the person dying. I mean, down to what you want the environment, like who do you want to visit you or not visit you? Yep. You know, what kind of legacy you can create a legacy project as a family. And in a way, like that's kind of what you did, like this legacy, not a project, but this legacy that became a project, right? It was this idea that is now almost a legacy project in a way. Yeah. We we were like, we, we didn't, 
know what we were doing. You know, my mother was right. one of those people. Yeah, we just kind of did. I mean, I've seen now you look at here we are in 2021 and I did something. Well, nobody knows this. You'll be the first to hear this. <laughs> so uh, I spoke to you earlier that I have this adoptive grandmother and unfortunately she passed away on Valentine's Day from from COVID and some other complications. And I've known her for 26 years. And as you well know, you know, the grieving process doesn't have to be over a human being. It could be over a puppy. It could over be your 401k just went down to zero. Mm-hmm. It could be, you know, a best friend or, you know, so many different types of losses of divorce. And so, uh, I came out here just because I had promised uh, Edna, who's the adopted grandmother, that I would look in on their daughter. They have an only child and then the two granddaughters. So I've been here for a couple months, um, but it didn't start out that way because I live in Palm Springs and I'm from Warren, Pennsylvania. So I got here and I drove, right? I drove all 2,467 miles. And um, I've been to my mother's grave site which is this, you know, tiny little town. It's got a hill, you know, the first year to your point, you know, we did the candles. She paid for the candles on her, on the day she died, her birthday. We did the wreath during Christmas. And I think we did that for the first two years. And then I've been back a couple different times. Cause it's, you know, it's on the other side of the United States, but my goal really was to visit her. Cause I realized that January 26th will be 25 years. Right. So to your point, not only can you plan before you pass away, then during the process, what do you want that to, what do you want that to look like or be like? You know, I was just flying off the seat of my pants. One of the, to your point, uh, environmental things I did was she will never be alone, right? There will be somebody around her holding her hand 24 hours a day, seven days a week through the entire process until she dies. She will never, she'll, I said to people volunteer, do not walk out and have a cigarette. She cannot be left alone for, you know, for 10 seconds is, is 20 seconds too long. Right. It's just that was sort of the some of the parameters that I put together, not knowing there are other things that, that you can do. And um, so I realized I was about seven and a half hours away from here. So I just got back and I went and visited my mother and I'm going to actually put it on Facebook and YouTube and such on January 26. But here we are 25 years later and I went to her gravesite and it's overgrown. You know, the bronze is all just as dark, as dark as it could be. And I remember, you know, going on to um, YouTube and there's really great organizations that go to VA cemeteries and, and headstones and they just redo them, you know, for the military. And so I got these great ideas. So I spent three days. And let me tell you, my mother's gravesite is the bomb. It's just beautiful. <laughs> it's like, but again, you know, because she was cremated, so her ashes are there. But for me, it was yet another way of being able to process my feelings. Here we are 25 years later. Clearly, I've gone through the seven stages of grief. Um, but you, I look at this now, and it's, I mean, might I say, it is the most beautiful grave site in the entire War Memorial <laughs> Cemetery. Because, you know, but you can do that. So there's a before, there's a during, and there's an after. Um, I'm just curious. So she was a veteran? No. So, um, no, so it's a great question. No. So what I did was, is I was just going to go visit her. That's it. Right. And then there's this um, website called findagrave.com. Right. So uh, because I worked in the entertainment industry for many years, uh, you literally can go onto this website. It's completely free of charge. And you can find, I'm telling you, pretty much anybody's grave anybody's um celebrity or non-celebrity and so you know i've seen like 
you know, different celebrities and things. And I know there's YouTube videos and I'm, you know, this is me, but I love cemeteries. I love walking in because I think it's quiet. And I love when it says 1609 to 17 something. It's just, I don't know. There's something peaceful for me. It's my thing. So, um, I, I thought, well, I wonder if my mother's is there. So it was. Somebody took a picture and they put it up there. And I remember just seeing how dilapidated it was. So I was like, okay, I'm I'm going to drive out there. You know, it's their 25th uh, memorial. And so, I, you know, you, God bless YouTube. I went on there just to see, well, how, how do you clean the bronze? So there was this guy and there's these groups. And what they do is they travel all over the United States and they specifically clean military headstones. And I saw that YouTube and I just saw the techniques that they use. So it was that YouTube that sparked the idea for me, but I thought how wonderful there's actually organizations all over the country and they just volunteer and they go to all these different, you know, vet, uh, vet memorials and headstones. And, and, and I've seen dozens and dozens and dozens of them. So no, she wasn't a vet, but that I, what I, when I was researching and I saw, you know, you get this bottle of this stuff, you do this, you use this scrub. If it's bronze, you do this. If it's a headstone, you do this. I'm like, Oh, okay. I'm taking notes down. And I literally had all my stuff put in the back of the car and it's beautiful. It's beautiful. That's, that's a really good tip. And I'm actually going to, if you can send me that link, I'll put it in the show notes for others to oh, find a grave. Yeah. Oh, well, to yeah, find a grave, but also that the tutorial on how to. Oh yeah. yeah it's great. That- I'm telling you, I looked at probably half a dozen and this one right before I left, because, you know, for the most part, it, my mother says it's a bronze plaque plaque that's in the ground versus a headstone but they have that but i mean they tell you like you know you know to get 25 years of organic matter off the concrete there's a certain formula you use and then uh you know cutting it away and then there's this guy he's got the tombstone cleaner uh starter kit so i bought that off of amazon.com and you know it's like he's got the before and after pictures but yeah i'll send you a bunch of links uh there's um there's just, I mean, it's weird. You think that like, like in my brain, I'm like, no one does this, I'm, but I'm going to do it. And then because of technology where we can use technology to our advantage versus our disadvantage, you go online and I literally, I'm telling you, you probably saw a dozen people. There was these two ladies. They were funny as all kaboot. And they did a whole, like, you know, they had to edit it, right? What step by step, they, had, they brought out a picnic basket. They did the blanket. And, you know, they sprayed the thing. They're like, oh my gosh, this really smells bad. No wonder it cleans everything off. I mean, really, for what is you know, could be a very sad time, you know, and then the before after pictures. And there was this one I looked at, oh, this was really, you know, again, for me, it was really nice to do this because it helps me process my own feelings in regards to having, you know, her, her been passed for 25 years. So I saw one more and the guy was doing the whole thing, cut around the grass, take, you know, get a, get a, a, um, a spatula or whatever, uh, the garden and do all this. And then, uh, he was redoing his son's marker because his son passed when he was like two or three. So it was like, Oh my gosh. So, you know, and he's just, it wasn't bad, but he got rid of all the grass and then he dug like a four inch trench around the entire marker and he'd lined it with this netting. And then he put in white gravel and I was like, that's what I'm doing. (laughs) It's like, it was so beautiful and then i well here i don't i don't know if i can even do this let's let's just see what we can do with technology um if it's even possible all right 
we'll we'll see if we can see we'll see if we can see this on on the uh on wonderful youtube right so i don't know if that can even be seen probably not little bit oh i'll link to it okay that'll be great and then it it um yeah i'll send you the pictures and such and that's that's what it turned out to be oh okay yeah the before and after but yeah i'll uh i'll uh i'll send you the pictures and you can post them however you like so people so people can see this is yet another thing that you can do afterwards and just the the i was on a an all-time high for a good three, four, five days because it, it took so much work and it really was painful, but it was also joyful at the same time. And it was arduous and, but it, it just felt so good to be able to do that for her 25 years later. Well, and I think it's a good point to mention just because the fact, especially if you're the caregiver or caretaker of someone and, you know, grief in of itself is, if you think of grief, it's, like a change in behavior, like a familiar pattern of behavior. And so if you wake up every day and your first thought is what you're going to do or what you need to do to care for your loved one who's dying, and then they pass away and you wake up the days after that, it's that is a change in your behavior. You're no longer waking up to care for that person. Yeah. And so that's added grief, right? Like, what do you do with you? You know, you just, you took, some may find some relief and then you also, but then again, that, that can be conflicting because you feel bad then because you're relieved because that, you know, you know, that, that responsibility is no longer there and you feel guilty because that responsibility is no longer there. Well, and even to your point, I'll be very transparent. So one of the things that I did is, you know, as my mom was going through hospice and they were wonderful, they gave us the names and numbers of different grief groups. And I chose to, I made a conscious choice and I, I don't care if it's a grief group. I don't care if it's a life coach such as me, but you know, the greatest advice I can give any person that goes through the grieving process, I don't care what it is that you lose, is not to do it alone. Do not do it alone. I went to grief therapy once a week with this wonderful chaplain. I went to group therapy one to two times a week for two years. That was like my gift to myself, right? Because I spent two and a half years, you know, working with my mom. And then it was just sort of amazing what you find out to your point, you know, I had had this job this was a job for two and a half years, caring for my mother day and night. Right. And then when it was done, I was like, what do I do now? Like, like I had gotten a rhythm. I had gotten a rhythm. I hardly slept. My immune system was on an all time high. And I remember when she finally passed and I, you know, got to the gravesite, came back to California about two, two and a half weeks later, never been so sick. My immune system just said, okay, You've been on this roll, dude, for two and a half years. We need to relax. And, you know, again, I just employ all your listeners that just don't do it alone. I mean, I think the greatest emotional challenge I faced in my grieving process was, and I didn't really know this consciously, but it came up and it was painful, painful, is that. I realized that in my mind that I had failed. See, as my mother's caregiver, my unconscious said to me, your job is to save her. Well, I failed. I failed. And I'm a man. So that just adds a lot of, you know, stuff and layers because, you know, we're the, we're the, we're the, 
we're the, we're, you know, we're the cavemen that go out there and we get the food and we help out the family and that's our, our role. And I really struggled with the idea that I didn't save my mom. And then through really great, you know, counselors and such, I came to realize it wasn't my job to save my mother from cancer. Well, my job was to love her as best as I possibly could. And then finally came to the understanding that in that job, I was quite successful. That's a very good reframe. Just imagine, <laughs> well, imagine how many people are torturing themselves oh, with that same, that same story. It's, it's when that came up, I mean, I can, I can, I can see the chaplain and, you know, and, and she was just, you know, this quiet, demure kind of woman. And she's like, well, do you, you know, do you ever blame yourself for not, you know, that, that your mom died? And I was like, okay, I never really addressed that question before. Why is that coming up? Right. And then all these feelings just came up and I was like, yes, you know, I'm, I'm the oldest child. Uh, I'm, you know, my mom's a single mom. There's no husband or father. And of course I'm supposed to save her. And yes, I failed. I failed. I failed. I failed. And then through working with her, we were able to reframe it in a way that that was my, that wasn't my job. You know, is it, is it our job to save the person that's going through this process or is it our job just to love them and be with them as best as we possibly can? Yeah. So growing up, you, you mentioned it was a single household and, and things. And so your dad was never in the picture. Yeah. So my parents uh, divorced when I was four, we were, I was born in Pennsylvania, raised in California, but my father was a alcoholic, unfortunately. And so, and a bit of a narcissist. Um, and so my mom being, you know, this is the late sixties or early sixties rather. And so, you know, she took it upon herself. That I have three children, you know, I need to, you know, be there and have their best interests in mind. And so then she moved all of us back to Pennsylvania where her parents lived. And so, yeah, he was never really in the picture. Uh, there's one story about him, which is probably another show because he did show up one time, which was a very interesting time when I was 21, but no, for the most part, you know, she was a single woman that three raised three kids by herself, you know, way before the internet, way before, you know, all that stuff. Uh, I like to say that she paved the road for a lot of these women that, you know, are trying to get child support from, you know, the various people that keep evading it for some reason and, you know, laying down the laws that were necessary so that, you know, these, uh, you know, women and men uh, can make sure that, you know, they're getting the support that they need both, you know, financially, emotionally, psychologically, physically, you know, from the, from the relationship. Did any of those feelings from that loss of not having them in your life come up when your mom passed? You know, it's a great question. Um, no. And I think, uh, it's so funny, I haven't really addressed this. You know, when I moved to California, which was in uh, 1985, it was a couple of years after that, that my mother had called me and she said, I know this will sound a little strange, but, you know, I got a call from one of the relatives and your father passed away. Right. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, okay. You know, and so, you know, I, I again, you know, I, I have memories of him from zero to four, but never really had any kind of time with him. And so, you know, I shared that with my sister. The interesting thing is that my sister just burst into tears, which that sort of blew my mind. And then for me, and we sat and talked, she and I, we processed it together. And, you know, I think because she's the only girl there was never that daddy figure. There was never that father figure that I know girls really long for. And I think her grieving process was the 
possibility that that could be. And now that was gone. For me, it was interesting because I'm one part I thought, should I be crying? You know, it's like, because I'm not, you know, and, and I explored and I said, well, you know, I don't have any time with this. I don't have life experiences with this person. I don't have memories of this person. So, you know, I don't have the ability to grieve over something that did not exist. Right. Was I sorry they died? Sure. But to answer your question, I don't think so because he had passed. um, And because I reconciled all of that, there really wasn't, um, he was so out of my mind now that I think about it. I mean, that was the last person I was thinking about. You know, my, my focus was really about this woman who, you know, left this man to take on the responsibility of raising three children as best as she possibly can. And for me, it was like, okay, I'm going to, I'll share this story with you, which I think epitomizes this. And I think, you know, because there are two types of dying, as you know, the one we know that's coming and the one that's a surprise. You know, I had a friend that died in the Twin Towers. That was a shock. That was a surprise, right? My mother had 36 days in hospice. We could prepare for that, right? So those are the two forms of dying. And um, I remember when the neurologist came in and said, look, your mother's lung cancer has metastasized to her brain, and there's nothing we can do. The worst sentence in the human language, I think. And so, you know, you, you wrap your head around what that means. It's like, oh, oh. Oh, she's going to die. Okay. You didn't say it out loud, but I, 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 I got what you were inferring here. Right. So, you know, you go through the process of what you're going to do. And so because of my mother's insurance and such, she said, well, you can do, you know, we can put her in a nursing home that, you know, deals with this kind of thing, or you can do hospice. I had never heard of hospice before. Right. So we get all the details and I sit down with my sister and brother because, you know, this is where then it gets really sticky because depending on your family dynamics, depending on how much money there is, depending on what your morals and values and ethics are, each person that comes to the table when you have this transition. So I remember sitting down with them and saying, this is going to happen. You know, how do we want this to happen? And I decided as the oldest that we just be very democratic and whatever, you know, the two out of three, you know, versus it being my way, because I know me. So I said, well, what do you think? My sister's like, oh, nursing home. <laughs> my brother goes, yeah, yeah, nursing home. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, that's the last thing my mother wanted. She, I mean, she, I said, well, you, you know, Mom never wanted to be in a, she said, if anything should ever happen, please, oh, God, don't put me in a nursing home. Well, they, you know, just decided to forget that part, right? So I sat down and we just had the dialogue and the dialogue and the dialogue about it. And I I knew, right, just with my work, I knew that it wasn't about my mother going into hospice and or going into a nursing home. What it was about was the fear that they were going to face if she was going to be in hospice and actually being proactive in the process. So if you put her in a nursing home, then somebody else does it. Mm-hmm. If you put it right. And I went, oh, oh, okay. So this is what I said to them. And it worked. And I, I don't even know, this is my intuitive self. I said, look, I'll make you a deal. Cause we were at an impasse. I, I'll lead this. You don't have to be there 24 seven, but I want your assistance. I want you to be there because I want you to be part of the process. I'll lead this. Let's just do this. Let's do hospice. Let's do hospice this time. And then I said, and then time mom dies we'll do the nursing home. And they just looked at me and he's like, what do you mean? 
I said, because this is the first time she's going to do this. And we get one chance. And I'm just afraid we're going to pick the wrong one. And they decided that we would do hospice. That's a good reframe too. I specialize in reframing. (laughs) You know, it just was like, oh, you know, so yeah. The reason why I asked about your father and stuff is because grief is cumulative and it's cumulatively negative. And I know you said that, you know, your grief experience with that was very different from your sister's and you had mentioned something and I just want to come back to it because I think it's important for anyone listening. And um, what you had said was you can't grieve something or someone that wasn't there uh, to that effect. You had said. Yeah. And what I mean by there is that, you know, so much of our grief comes out of the memories and the life experiences that we had with the individual, right? Mm-hmm. That whole process, the, the good, the birthday parties, the vacations, the, all that stuff, right? My father wasn't in my life. Like I didn't have those experiences. I never talked to him. You know, I remember at four and that's it. So there's this space that has no life experiences whatsoever with him. So there's no memories of being able to say, Oh my gosh, I miss when he put me on his shoulders and we went to the playground together. Now, I had already, I think in my mind, dealt with the grief of not having a father, right? Especially going in the 60s, because, you know, look, when I was in first grade, there were 32 students. I'll never forget this. Irvindale Elementary School, there were 32 students. Out of 32 students in 1968, I was the only one that came from divorced parents. Now, look at it. There's probably one or two people that even have parents that are still together out of the same number. So. For me, I think I went through the grieving process of realizing that I was not going to have a father over the course of time of my, you know, teen years and early adult years. So by the time I learned that he died, I had been through those seven stages, right? You know, um, the whole shock and denial and pain and guilt and, well, why don't I have a father? And, And my mom and I, we had dozens and dozens and dozens of conversations about my dad. Right. So she was very open and transparent, authentic about that, what it was about. So I think by the time I got to that, I was good because I had gone through those stages of what it meant not to have a father in my life. Whereas my sister hadn't, you know, my sister was still holding on to the hope that he was going to come back. And so when that hope. Yeah. And that's what I wanted to mention. Oh yeah, please. Grief grief is the loss of hopes, dreams, and expectations. And anything we wish would have been different, better, or more. Well said. Yeah. You just described my sister right there. Yeah, exactly. So that's why I just kind of wanted to circle back to that. Why some people, and because everybody's relationship is unique and individual, right? right? So even, you know, that's, that's where two people in the same household can have very different experiences. I was shocked when she burst into tears. I was like, cause the, and then, then my sister's a very controlling individual. She controls her emotions very, very well. So not only was it that she cried, but I was like, you don't cry. Like, this is the, okay, I need to sit down. <laughs> I'm sitting down and, you know, she sat down. And I said, okay, we got to process this a little bit. So, but to your, to what you just shared, you're absolutely correct. And you said something there. And I want to highlight this too, is that at some point with grief, either we implode or we explode. And so that ex- full expression, that unexpected expression of grief could have been years. And I, where I'm not analyzing or judging, but I, just to give people an understanding of why that could happen or where that comes from is when we spend so many years stuffing, 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 we either implode or we explode. Either our health deteriorates or we outwardly express it with anger, 
turning to food or drugs or alcohol or relationships, things like that. And so I just wanted to, to highlight that too, for people listening. Yeah, I agree with you hundred percent. I think, I think even in my two years of my grieving, I, um, there was not drugs or anything like that, but there were, you know, I think we all adopt certain behaviors in an effort to deal with, you know, whatever particularly is happening in our lives emotionally, especially as it relates to grieving. So I think we all have that. It's just, you know, to our earlier conversation, this is why I say, don't do this alone, right? To isolate yourself and sit in the dark with the lights off and just mourn over the person that you loved. I mean, I remember, you know, and it was so telling. I remember when my mom passed, right? And then, you know, you, we had the number we call, you know, they come and pick her up. And it was just such a great experience because it was my grandmother, my sister, and my mother, and the two gentlemen that came to take, you know, my mother's body, you know, we're just sitting there like, I've never done this before. And he said, um, he said, listen, you know, may I make a suggestion? And I said, sure. He said, why don't you spend some time with her? But then I'm going to suggest that maybe you go into the bedroom because what we have to do to prepare her may not want, may not want to be the last memory you have of her. And I was like, I got it. Right. I, I seen enough movies and I was like, okay. Yeah. So we did our thing, went inside the bedroom, right. Sat there for about 10 minutes. He knocked on the door. He said, um, we've taken her and we will take care of her. I mean, he was so amazing. I mean, these are the two guys to take her to the morgue. That's what they do. But how he did it was just so amazing. So by that time, then the nurse came in uh, and she was sitting us down, talking all that. And so she said, we're, which, you know, again, it, it, when she said it was weird, she said, where is all the medicine and the morphine and such? And I said, oh, I have it all organized over here, right? The next thing I knew, she took out this garbage bag and she started going, rifling through our stuff, what we paid for in the bag, taking the pills and the morphine. And the, I was like, I said, excuse me, what are you doing? She says, oh, we have to take this. I said, no. You don't. I said, that's our stuff. We paid for. No, we have to take it. When you signed that you were going to do hospice, this is part of the process. I said, well, you really need to explain yourself. And she sat me down. She said, because we have so many instances where the husband loses the wife and then they make the call and we come back to two bodies. So we're going to take away everything that may allow you to cause harm to yourself. And then she gives you the numbers of the counselors and the grief therapy and the chaplain, right? What a learning curve. What I was like, wow. In my end of life uh, doula training, that was one thing that wasn't said actually. So, so I, I, helped you. I would add that if I were yeah. you. The yeah. one thing that was said was as the loved ones, and the person that's trans- going to be transitioning, you can choose to wash their body. Right. And, you know, as a person dying, you can choose if you want your body washed or not. And do you want your whole body washed or just your face or, you know, and I think that's where it's not, I, I think we are so afraid of the dying process in of general. Course. I think hospice actually gives an opportunity to be a part of the process. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that's, I mean, I, in the two years that I did the grief therapy and such, I remember being on, um, it was some kind of, well, it wouldn't be a webinar, but they were able to pull it together. But 
I remember whoever invented hospice, they were doing this uh, talk. They were one of the guests. And it was just fascinating to hear this person uh, back in the day because um, I, I was really in it to win it. You know, at that time, I was like, okay, you know, I'm going through this process. I you know, didn't become a grief counselor per se, but you know, took courses to allow me to at least help facilitate and, and such. So it's, uh, oh, well, it gives you that ability to be part of, to be proactive versus we could just come to a nursing home and we go and visit her for an hour each day and then we come home and we live our lives. But to me, that would just have added more angst to the grief process for us had we chosen that route. I'm going to share something too, just because I have a podcast episode coming out soon with Ken Ross. And by the time this airs, I'll link to it in the show notes. Um, But Ken Ross is Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's son. And I think who you're talking about is his mother. She was was the pioneer. Yes, 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 yes. That's exactly right. I love love the synchronistic moment that we're having right now. I couldn't put... You're absolutely correct. You're absolutely... I remember it so well. She was the trailblazer for hospice and palliative care. But actually you said to the seven stages of grief and she's known for the five stages, the five stages. Exactly. Right. But it's actually not five stages. It's actually, she talked about 10 different oh, emotions because okay. really they're not even stages. They're kind no. of like these, like an emotional scale that doesn't go in like this linear. No, it's, it's yeah. yeah, you're absolutely right. I, 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 you know, I mean, because of the two years I spent, I mean, so to your point, ironically, we were able to bring this all together. Uh, yeah, it was the five. And then, you know, as I continued to do research, it was like the seven. And then, you know, that this is not, you know, this is more like a, what did someone call it? What's a universal roller coaster where, you know, you go up and then to the side and then you go back again and then you get, then you get to the top and then the roller coaster goes in reverse and you're at one and then you go to seven, then you go to the three. And yeah, it's, and it's all individualistic. She, her work, and Ken and I talked about this too. It's there's so much more to her work than that. I and bet it was talked about so much at one point, she just didn't even want to talk about it. Like it was like that's all anybody, like social, like the media, yes. that's what everybody latched on. That was her brand. And, that was and her, her brand. And her work was just so much more than that. I can imagine. Yeah. So, anyway, I just, oh, I I'll have to, to listen to that. I'm excited. You'll have to send that to me. Yeah. <laughs> Next, that's next week Tuesday. It's coming out. Oh, nice. Okay, so, I'll be there. Actually, not next week Tuesday. Today's Monday. Tomorrow. <laughs> Manana. Okay, I got I get it on my list of things to do. Okay, so back to you. And I just I'm gonna share this because um, and I sh- I meant to share this earlier when you were talking about red balloon, and we'll circle back to that because um, I had had a medium psychic medium reading for the first time earlier this year, <laughs> and. Silly. And it was, my dad passed away when I was eight. So it's been well over 30 years and I had never had a reading. And so one of the things I had asked for after that reading, which was, I think in April of this year, um, if I'm remembering correctly, just maybe two months after that, um, I had asked for a red balloon. Oh, 
Oh, I did not goodness. get it. I did not get it or see it or be right. open to seeing it until you submitted your application to be on my podcast. Oh my goodness. Well, this is, now, I'm curious if you're open to this, you don't have to share. Uh, can I ask who, who your medium was? The reading, who did the reading? Siri Burnson. She okay. was actually, I did a podcast interview with her. She was on oh, my okay. podcast too. Okay. So, so we're, we're, we're really going to have a synchronistic moment here. So one of the, I don't know, one of the reasons, but, um, so we're in, I live in Warren, Pennsylvania. And so we're really close for about maybe 20 minutes away from the New York state borderline. And, um, uh, there's this little town called Lilydale, New York. Lilydale has been around for years. It's considered one of the top 10 psychic towns in the United States. And my mother and her best friend would always go there, you know, um, I mean, they've got the mediums, they've got the psychics, all that. And and now they do workshops and they have a conservatory. I mean, it's just incredible. So my mother was very much into it. So we share this. Fast forward, I moved to California. And, uh, you know, I look, I'm a believer in many paths. You just have to prove it to me. I mean, seriously. And um, this is in, it's also featured in my book. So there's a whole thread but a really good friend of mine said, she's like, you know, look, there's this guy, you know, uh, his name is James von Prague. Uh, he is this evidential medium. And, you know, I, I, I met him recently. He's, I think you'd really like him. And so long story short, you know, James von Prague, who's written 10 New York Times bestseller books, you know, in the late uh probably 80s early 90s he was the he was the guy he had his own talk show i mean just phenomenal but he at that time was just you know this guy that was doing you know like to your point he was doing readings and um and uh she called my friend she said oh he's doing this you know gathering let's go and you know it would be these gatherings of you know four or five hundred people he would do samplings and then you know people would hire him to do readings at his home so i signed up I signed up. What the heck? I, you know, I was, it was fascinating. So this was in, let me see. Can I get this right here? 94, 93, 92, like around 1990. So I do my reading, right? It's all tape recorded and such. And it was phenomenal. It was phenomenal because, you know, he's an evidential medium and there are cons and there are real people, there are scams. And I do believe people have gifts, but what was really interesting is that he, uh, I pulled up in front of his house in Hollywood and he lived in a seedy area of Hollywood. It was in East Hollywood. And I just sat there. And I was like, oh, this is going to be really, you know, whew, kind of deal, you know. And so and my father had passed by this time. And uh, my mother had moved to California. So I, so I go up. I knock the door. He opens the door. He's a short little man with a mustache. And he said, oh, come in, come in, come in. I just get a glass of water. This is pre-computers, right? Because now it's a little difficult in terms of authenticity because, you know, everyone blames psychics for Googling people, right? Because we have we can do that now. There was no Google. There was nothing. There was no computer. I mean, very little computers. So um, we sat down. We liked the candle. We did the prayer. And he looks at me and he goes, he goes, um, are you a little nervous? And I said, well, I said, I'm open to this. Trust me. I, he knew about Lily Dale. He said, well, your father's here. Well, that was the last person that I thought was going to come through. I was like, you know, and he's saying to you that you sat outside for about 20 minutes. Cause you're worried about what would happen if your dad came. I sat outside for 20 minutes in the car thinking that very thought. Right. And then he kept, he, he, he kept saying things that like nobody knew. Like, like nobody on the planet knew but me. 
And to me, it was really interesting because clearly in the spirit world, there's no sense of time because your dad, he said, oh my God, your dad's laughing. So what is he laughing at? He said, he's laughing because, you know, he he saw you sneaking out the bedroom window and sitting on the roof, looking at the stars. Well, I did that when I was seven, but they divorced when I was four. I said, well, how does he know that? He said, oh, time is, is there's no such stuff. I was like, and nobody knows. I never even told my mother I used to do that, right? Well, then we get done, and he goes, <laughs> we're in the middle of it. And he said, hey, uh, do you need a job? I said, excuse me? He said, well, my 13-foot Indian guy just got in the front of the line of the people that are here to see you and said, I'm supposed to be, okay, give you a job. Let's talk about it afterwards. I became James Von Pog's first personal assistant for two years. So I think my, I read that. Yeah, my 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 path has been very interesting. I mean, I remember the last I remember the last appointment because then I was going on to doing Shawshank Redemption, right? And had to put my notice in the last appointment. He said, Listen, I have someone coming. I said, Okay, I'm gonna go take a walk. And so there's a knock at the door, and I open the door, and there stands Cher. And she's like, do I, I have the right place? Is this changed on Prague? And I said, oh, Miss Cher, because I didn't know her last name. I said, yes, you do. And she, she said, and she had a Jaguar. She said, is my, is my car safe out there? And I said, oh, I said, I'll watch it. Don't, don't about it so got her in sat her down got her some water james came took her upstairs did her thing i watched her jaguar and that was my last last time working with him um but for two years you know i worked with him and you know he taught me and you know i experienced all of that so yeah so do you feel like i mean intuition like as a kid like did you have you know, because you said you worked on it, but you know, like yes. so many of us, and especially when we're grieving or in grief, we, it's really hard for us to tap into our intuition. Well, it's okay. It's not hard to tap into it because it's always there, right? What's difficult is believing that you have it. Our brain gets in the yeah. way. Oh, we all have it. I, I, I do this with my life coaching clients all the time. So I'll give you great examples because this is what I try to do is, is that they'll hire me. And I said, well, you have all the answers. You're just not listening to them. They're like, what do you mean? I said, no, no, you do. We all do. But mm-hmm. do we choose to listen? Do we choose? You know, Look, I remember when James did a reading and he had this guy. And what I loved about James is when he... If he says it's you and there's a woman here that has a pocket of coins that you used to collect, you know, and he will not deviate, right? If the guy said, no, that's not me. He goes, no, it's you, right? And I remember this one time, this guy, nope, it's not me. It's not me. It's not me. It's not me. We get done two hours, right? People are like, you know, all over James and such. And I remember seeing the guy off to the right. And he waited for probably a good half hour. Everyone leaves. He comes over and, and, you know, James and he talk. He said, listen, all that really did happen. I was just afraid to say something. So to your point, um, yeah, you know, this is in the book as well. I knew my mother was going to die at a young age. I've always known. I've known it since I was 13 years old. I didn't share it with anybody. You know, this will be the fact in the book and this podcast is probably the first. I mean, I've said it to a few people when I speak, but I remember my mother and I got into an argument and I could see things. So when I, since I was like six years old, like I could see the future. I, you know, those, those sort of premonitions, uh, like I, 
I would just like know things about people. I would, it was just the scariest and oddest thing growing up in a small town in, in warm Pennsylvania. But I just kind of kept it to myself. And my mother and I, when I was 13, we just moved to this new house and I got in this huge argument with her and I was mad and I ran out of the house to go across the street to play with some friends and I got halfway across the street and I remember getting to the other side to the sidewalk and I just collapsed and I just burst into tears you know and I knew I could feel I was like because I heard this message saying you know you need to be kind to your mother because she's not going to be around long and I like I saw her death I knew it was going to be young and I literally that moment changed we had a good relationship, but my respect for her and my devotion really to her had really changed because I really believed that she was going to leave at a, at, a, at a young age. So then at 33, when I woke up at three o'clock in the morning and I said, I heard the message that she got cancer. I was like, oh, this is it. You know, though I will say that when I went through the process with her being a primary caregiver, I was fully believing that she was going to beat cancer because I don't think anything's set in stone. I think how we interact, our energy, what we do, can we change our destiny? Yeah, absolutely. Nothing's written in stone uh, kind of deal. But, you know, that's what I use. That's why I talked to you earlier. I said, um, you know, I do these intuitive readings for clients before we do my four-month program. And so, you know, it's something I want to offer your audience. So, you know, if you text the word voices or voice, what doesn't matter, whatever works, just text it to me at 760-835-3327. Again, just text voices to 760-835-3327. As long as I'm alive and well and six feet above ground, I said, I will text you back. And this is a complimentary intuitive reading. It's what I do, you know, for all prospective clients, but just for people, because I want you to have something. And I'm about, I I plotted this on an Excel spreadsheet. I just did three this past two days. I'm about 86% correct. Right. And what we do is, you know, it just, whatever comes up. And for me, I share with clients, there are four things that come up, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the beautiful, because that's our life. Yeah. That's our life. There's so many different ways I could go from here. (laughs) I'm not sure which to go. Maybe your intuition will lead you, lead this conversation where it should go. Cause you've, you've given, you've given a tip, like don't, you know, for grievers is to not grieve alone. And that's yeah, do not do alone. Get somebody. Uh, one of the best pieces of advice you ever received while you were grieving was. I would say the best piece of advice that I received when I was grieving, cause I got so many, I would say, here's what I'll say. I remember when I was doing the grief group and this woman, this was at a hospital in Glendale. It's a couple miles down the street. And this woman was incredible. I, I don't even know if she's still with us, but I went and I went for my first group. Right. And so I'm fresh off the death of my mother. Right. So a lot of you who might be listening are fresh off the death of a loved one or a person that you've lost. So I sat there and I was nervous, you know, I mean, I, 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 you know, I was a former actor and such, but I was like, this is the real deal. This is not acting. This is the real stuff here. And so she said, Hey, welcome everybody. You know, this is our Tuesday night, you know, seven to uh, nine, la, 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 la. Um, if you're new, if you don't mind, could you just raise your hand? So I was like, 
<laughs> I raised my hand. She said, so we're just going to, you know, just gently, I mean, her words are wonderful. I mean, I'm, I'm an English major and communications major. We're just going to gently go around the room. If you just, you know, if you're open, just say your name and maybe, you know, a sentence of why you're here. Right. And I was like, okay. So there's about five or six of us that were brand new. And so I was in the back and I just remember listening one, two, three, four, five, and they got to me. And I was in this trance because I just was like, like all the feelings and emotions about my mother were coming up. And she said, you know, could you share your name? And I didn't hear her. Like I didn't even see her. And she said, sir, could do you mind? Do you, are you okay with sharing your name? And I, I was like, Oh, I'm so sorry. I said, yeah. I said, my name is Brent Scarpo. She said, are you open to sharing with us while you're here? And I took this moment and I just went through the entire two and a half years of caring for my mother. And I said to her, I said, you know, I'm here to do on a full-time basis what I've only done part-time. And that's finally take care of me. And just tears streamed down my face. And I remember she came over and she put her hands gently on my shoulders. And, and she said, that's why we're all here. We are here to finally have the opportunity to take care of ourselves and what this journey is about. And to give permission to feel, to give permission to look at the loss that you just went through. And so I think my advice to you is just to give you permission to go on this journey, to give you permission to take care of yourself full time, to give you permission to be able to seek out those resources and say to, you know, the people that are pulling you in different ways, no, 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 mommy's doing, mommy's, daddy's going to go to this group. Uh, this is something I have to do. And give yourself permission to take care of yourself and do for yourself what you did so wonderfully for the person that you cared for. Well, and in the process, especially if you're a parent and have children, you're setting an example of how important that is. Right. All modeling the behavior. Yeah. So what has, what has your grief taught you? Well, well, it's funny because I was vacillating between two words of wisdom. Here's what I'll share with you. What it's taught me is because halfway through the process, this is the, probably the number two bits of wisdom. She said, and it's just so true. Um, and somebody was having a particularly difficult time. And she said, look, she said, this is hard work. I'm not going to mess around. She said, but I am going to make you a promise. She said, because I know a lot of you are feeling like you're just this train going through this dark tunnel, you know, that has no light. And that just keeps going and going and going and going. And you come week after week after week after week, feeling pain after pain after pain. But she said, here's my promise to you. If you continue to do the work, to get on the train, to go through the dark tunnel, to feel the pain, I promise you at some point in time, you will see the light. And in the light are the gifts. And those gifts are being sent by the person that you're grieving over and you're going to open up those gifts and it's going to be pure joy. And it took about two years, but all of a sudden the train came out and I saw the light and I saw the gifts and I opened them up and I felt the joy. I'm going to ask you a question because intuitively I want to know the answer, but I think it would be helpful to others listening. If I would have known you then, and even a year and a half, a year into their the group you were going to. And 
I'm not bashing group supports systems or group programs and by any means. I think you found support in it. It helped you. I'm not saying that they're they're wonderful for people. But if I would have said to you, if you want to work one-on-one with me and I can help you in eight, eight sessions, what you've worked through in eight year in two years, would you have believed me? Well, I actually did it. So when hospice came, they said, look, you, we, they gave us all these kinds of resources. So there's this group and then there was one-on-one and I, here's what I knew. Here's what I did. So I was a casting director at the time. I was casting Shawshank Redemption, Air Force One. The last movie I cast before my mother passed away was Matilda, right? I hired 3,000 children and worked with the funniest guy named Danny DeVito. So during, and this is what I did, during the two and a half years that I was my mother's primary caregiver, I opened up a separate bank account. And I put enough money away for every month that I was her caregiver and that she had cancer so that I could take that much time off. Ooh. I know. That's another great another, tip. Another tip. <laughs> another tip. But I remember just saying, you know what? Because I thought if this should go wrong, I'm going to have to be able to deal with some stuff. And I don't know if I really want to go to work and, and, and pretend to cast children in a Cheerios commercial and be happy about it. So I had two and a half months of salary and I took a year uh, and I didn't work at all. I took When I say I took care of myself full time, I wasn't playing, but I, I planned it. That's why I'm telling people this is the biggest tip is you've got to plan for this ahead of time. The red balloon was done years and years before she, you know, I, I, I had the dream that she had cancer. I mean, all this can be planned and you can get the joy out of that. And so I did the uh, group. Uh, we met once. A, uh, well, I did two. I did it twice. And then I was so impressed with her. Um, I went to her once, once a week, right? Now, I went to her once a week for a about a year. Um, now, if you say to me, you know, in eight weeks, if you meet with me, I guess it depends on what you're saying to me. In eight weeks, you work with me, your grief will be over. I, yeah, I probably not been over. Very... Your grief won't be over. Oh, okay, okay. It's just that every emotional thing that's keeping you bogged down and keeping you stuck and keeping you from living your fullest potential because you're you're emotionally incomplete in some way that would be resolved. Yeah. I would say, I mean, look, I have a four month life coaching program and I specifically did four months because, you know, I worked with a lot of people with addiction and such. And those, these 90 day and 30 day programs, you know, scientifically we've discovered that they don't work, right? It takes at least 90 plus days to change a behavior. It just does. I mean, all the research is out there, whether it's an emotional, psychological, physical, but whatever the case may be. So, um, you know, you're looking at two months. I knowing back then, maybe I would have said, yeah, let's go ahead and do this, but I would have gone on probably a while because I had made that plan. But I'm of the proponent that, you know, if you're going to do something one-on-one just because of all the research I've read, you want to do it for at least, excuse me, four months. Um, that's why I do my program. It's 21 sessions, right? 21 sessions and I guarantee you'll be transformed in some shape or form. I've got all the testimonials on my website, which is brentscarpo.com. And because it just takes that much time to get, you know, it's like the onion, you know, you peel back the onion. Mm-hmm. There's always layers and layers and layers and layers. So um, I hope that answers your question. 
No, I, I personally was just curious what your answer would be because I, I find though in, because grief recovery, the grief recovery method is evidence-based. Right. Kent university did a study and what I'm finding is that it can be really difficult for people to believe that it's possible even that you, you can't, you know what I mean? That you can't even get to. So like someone who's going through grief, like going to a support group where there isn't necessarily action, like you're not taking action. And I, some, and I think too, it depends on the facilitator. Um, but if you, cause I've heard many people say to me about the gr- grief group sometimes is that you f- almost feel worse when you leave because it's such a heavy. Oh, look, I agree with you. Yeah. 100%. I think um, I'll give you an example. In fact, I may, I may carry you with me because I'm going to go let the, uh, let the dog in um, is uh, you've got to figure out what device works best for you. Right. It's, it is. Um, I, I'm working with a client whose mother um, committed suicide. Right. And so it will be a year, two years ago yesterday. And you know, I said, you know, what are you doing to deal with your grief? Right. And so he's like, well, I started this group, but I don't know if I really want to go to therapy. I was like, okay, gotcha. Right. Well, I know him well enough because I've worked with him three times. So if he does for him, if he does therapy, he knows he's going to have to get to it. He's not Mm -hmm. ready. He's not ready. Let me just sit in the back here. You know, now he's also a man. Right. But he's sensitive enough to where he's open because, you know, men grieve differently. They're like, you know, they're, they're, they lose their child and two weeks later they're back at work. And the wife is like, what are you doing? Right. Because women grieve with expression and emotion and feeling and men keep it inside and they have to be busy and doing things so that they can process what it is that they're feeling. So I think you bring up a really good point. Not only choose not to do it yourself but choose the venue and the way that works best for you right maybe it's therapy one-on-one and that's it maybe it's group it's group because you, you you like being around people and such mm-hmm. maybe it's a combination of the two um there's probably modalities out there that i'm not even familiar with i know i know well no i mean i know i know people that have had reiki they've had the the you know the energy they've had um you know, I knew one woman who she really didn't do therapy per se, but uh, once a week she did something for herself. So I got a massage, I got a facial, I, you know, I just did something to make me feel better, you know, because the other six days she was grieving, you know, mm-hmm. so that was that self care that she was able to do for herself rather than find herself plummeted in the depths of, you know, grief so low that she couldn't get out of it. So yeah, I think, um, well, here's a great example. So my client goes to group, right? And I said, how's that going? He said, because I don't, I don't know. You know, and he's, you know, this is, this is something brand new to him because he was an only child. I said, what do you, are you getting something out of it? He said, yeah. I said, but it's just, I just feel like I'm unique. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, other people, you know, they've lost a child or, you know, the grandmother died or the grandfather died or the husband died or whatever. He's like, my mom died. She killed herself. Right. I said, that's all you got to say. So then I Googled and I found a group that, is specific for everybody there their their lost loved one had committed suicide so he went to that and he said that's a world of difference just a world of difference he said thank you 
Yeah. And I think there can be dangers in that too, though, because we can, we can definitely learn from all people, people that have experienced all types of losses. And I think that's kind of what we do too. It's even if, you know, depending on what your loss is, you might say, well, why am I feeling so bad? They lost their child or, you know, and so we naturally can do things like that too. That that's where Again, I think it depends on the group and the facilitator. Absolutely. That's exactly right. I think uh, I was lucky. I mean, when this one was, I mean, she was, I won't say world renowned, but she was state renowned. Like she was it, you know? And so to your point, I think you're right. It's like, I mean, he went to the one group and didn't like it. So I was like, well, don't stay. He said, well, I'm trying to, I said, no, if you, if you, if this is not working for you, we just, there is a path. We just have to figure out which one it is for you. Cause not all things work for all people. We just have to figure out what it was. And then through, you know, my work with him, we were able to find it. Um, and you know, he did that for the first year and then he was fine. He's like, you know, I've done it. I'm doing this. And, you know, I'm working now with him for, cause I kind of worked with him at the tail end of that. And I'm working with him for another year. And so I'm doing something much different, you know, because now we're in year two, where this is the second year yesterday. So one of the things I said to him, which I do with all my clients, no matter if they're going through grief or not. And uh, I said, okay, he said, I want you to attend this class. And so I sent him the class. He said, really? I said, yeah. I said, just, just go to it and see what happens. Well, I think the greatest class any human being can take for all things is an improv class. I've taken mm. dozens and dozens and dozens. You want to learn how to do sales? Take an improv class. You want to learn how to ask out a woman or a man on a date? Take an improv class. If you want to get a uh, better your communication skills, take an improv class. So he said, I don't know. And I said, no, just it's free. Just go check in on it. So he went and they, I know they bring you up on stage. And I said, just text me when you're done. Well, it was done. I, I didn't get a text. So I text him to get nothing back. Then finally, like, Two hours later, he texted me. He said, I stayed for the two classes afterwards. I said, oh, I said, okay. And then we talked the next day. And I said, what do you think? He said, you know what? Thank you for sending that to me. He said, my biggest challenge is I don't think I'm allowed to laugh without my mom. He said, and all of a sudden, I found myself laughing, you know, and I almost felt guilty about it. But then I was like, maybe this is okay. Well, that was my mindset from the very beginning that why, why I sent him, you know, but I didn't, couldn't tell him that. Um, so now he signed up for the class and the course and, you know, making those transitions as far as, you know, the various, you know, for lack of better word, stages that he's in when it comes to grief and such. Cause you know, how, do, how do we learn to laugh without the person we used to laugh with? Mm-hmm. Well, it takes practice. You gotta have the right, you know, so that's not a grief group. That's not therapy right? That's an improv class and I'm all about it. That's another great tip. Oh yeah, absolutely. Everybody should take an improv class. Everybody, everybody. I, I, I took him when I was in acting school and then about three years ago, I decided to take him again for some odd reason. I went to like some really, you know, we've got some famous ones in Hollywood, but it was funny because I went and I said, you know, I've been to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. I graduated for two years. I said, I probably will start like level five or level six. He's like, yeah, you're starting all over. I was like, I am. He said, yeah, it doesn't matter where your past experiences are. We start you at the beginning. I was like, okay, sure. So and it was fine. I totally got it, you know, because the idea is to, you know, build this cohesion of a group of people that have the ability to speak and listen, listening being the most important part. Exactly. And I, I just want to circle back to what we've been talking about with groups and programs and things like that. And I think that's the most important thing to take away from this conversation is that to meet yourself where you're at, 
and what you're ready for. And I think when you're ready to hear it, you'll be open to it, whatever it is. Yeah, there's a lot of weight to what you just shared, but there's also then those people who, you know, maybe they're by themselves or they're isolated and such. And so they just, for some reason, the people, places, and things are in their lives to kind of nudge them along to the possibility that that's the group that I worry about, you know, Mm -hmm. that may not have that support group or don't have the ability to reach out or can't ask for help. Those are the ones I'm really concerned about the most. I mean, that's the beauty of, you know, grief groups and, and grief therapy back in 1997 when my mother died. And now, you know, you can do this on zoom, you know, we, with COVID, I mean, you know, when COVID happened, he was saying, he said, no, we, we, we couldn't get together. We had to do it on zoom. And that was sort of his transition of not doing it anymore because it just wasn't the same. Right. It just was not the same. And a lot of people that, you know, especially people who suffer from addiction and are going through that COVID was, it's been very difficult because you and I are talking, we're having a great time and such, but I still can't hug you, Mm -hmm. you know, and having that one-on-one. So yeah, I, if you can, if you can get to the place of knowing that you need some help and then you can get to the place of researching it, which we're able to do in the confines of our home, which is great. We got this thing called computer, but then take the action step that I'm talking about, you know, to do the zoom or make the call or have whatever it is. That's the most important piece because that piece is what then tells you where am I in the process? Mm-hmm. What, you know, versus I'm not going to do anything at all. Yeah. And I think you'll discover what you're ready for in that sure. process of taking sure. action, right? Yes, of asking absolutely. for help. Yeah. Absolutely. So what gives you the most hope and joy for the future? What gives me the most hope and joy for the future? So it's more of the word hope than anything else. Um, So for example, this last year, really, I've merged my life experiences in the entertainment industry with my life experience as a life coach. So, you know, one of the greatest films out there is, you know, the Shawshank Redemption. I was one of the assistant casting directors, one of the best four months of my entire life. I've seen the movie over a thousand times. And so, you know, I realized there's just so many great lessons from that film. And it's the reason why it's one of the top 10 films out there. And so, you know, I went through the whole film and I came up with the 10 top lessons that one can learn, you know, from the Shawshank Redemption when it comes to life. So, you know, let's go through a few of those. And because to answer your question, I remember when we had the 10th anniversary and Frank had sent us a brand new poster. So I put it up next to the old poster that I've had for years, but I never really looked at it. And so I will tell you why Shawshank Redemption is one of the top films that everybody to this day still loves. Um, It's because of the caption of the poster. And this answers your question. The caption of the poster in the film is this, fear will keep you prisoner. Hope will set you free. Fear will keep you prisoner. Hope will set you free. And so for me, it's not what is it that I think is going to happen when it comes to what is it that I hope for. But for me, it is the essence of hope. I think it's why we're having the difficulties that we've been having for the last five, six, seven years, right? If we've, we've lost the ability to believe that there's this thing called hope. And so when you lose that ability to believe in this thing called hope, then what happens is fear takes over. Fear will keep you prisoner. Hope will set you free. I spoke at this one university one time, and I don't know what the question was, but I remember responding saying, well, uh, the truth will set you free. 
right? And I had this aha moment. And uh, whatever the question was, you know, that was one of the answers that the truth will set you free. I said, but, and let's bring it back to the grieving process. Do you know who her cousin is? Right. I'm just saying this. This is like the intuitive. I like, I don't even know what's about to come out of my mouth. And they all kind of looked at me. I said, the truth will set you free, but her cousin is the truth hurts. And typically the truth has to hurt in order for it to set you free. The grieving process. We've got to go through the dark tunnel and the pain and the pain in order to receive the light and the gifts. Right. And so for me, it's the, the entity and the essence of hope to know that hope is always a possibility to know that hope is something that you can wrap your arms around to know that hope is always an option and that you don't have to live in fear and you don't have to bestow fear on other people. And you don't have to generate fear, which I think we've been doing so much in the last five to seven years, right? That people have made their mantra about fear than their mantra about hope. And so it's not what I hope for. It's that, there is hope. That's a big part of this podcast is to show people that no matter what you, who you are in life, what you're, you know, people of all walks of life have been on this podcast. And the one thing that they, every guest has understood and clung to at some point in their life was that hope, like hope tomorrow could, there is hope that tomorrow could be better, will be better, can be better. Yeah, D, all the above, right? Yeah. It's absolutely, it's, it's, and, and we've lost that in a lot of ways. I think COVID exacerbated the situation, um, you know, especially when we want to be in so control of our lives, right? And then something comes into our lives that you completely lose control, right? That's when you, that's when that concept of faith is being tested, when your faith in hope is being tested. And if you lose that faith in hope, well, then you automatically go to fear. Again, fear can hold you prisoner. Hope can set you free. One of the other, um, it's a great scene in the movie, right? And it, again, to your point, I, I could, cause I remember sitting there watching the scene happen when Andy Dufresne's character, you know, is having a difficult time being in prison for all those years for something he did not do. Right. I didn't sign up to lose my mother. This was not a group I volunteered for. It happened, right? It happened. And I'm part of a group that I did not volunteer for. I didn't want to be a member and I did not pay dues, but here I am. Right. And so his friend red, you know, starts to worry about him. And I remember just seeing, you know, the character turn, he said, well, I guess it comes down to two things, either get busy living or get busy dying. Mm. Well, exactly. Right. I mean, when COVID happened, you know, two years ago, and I had a lot of clients, oh, look, I freaked out. I'm human just as much as everybody else. And then my clients were coming to me. My one client, she lost all three of her jobs in 72 hours because they're all related to the restaurant business. Three jobs in 72 hours, gone. And I said, well, you got two choices. Right. And I said, you can either do the time or the time can do you pick one. Right. I did 168 projects in my place in that two years. Right. Cause my whole life, like everybody else was just, you know, decimated on some levels. And so you either get busy living or get busy dying. You know, you either get busy dying and live in the fear or you get busy and living and relish in the hope. Yeah. And I think you turn on the news 
That's probably one of people's biggest mistakes is turning on the news. Ugh. First three minutes is nothing positive. <laughs> it's like, oh, and, and then another six hours of nothing positive. Yeah. Right. Try, you, want, yeah. you want one thing to chip away at your hope, just keep the news on. Right. It's And it's difficult. I know I hadn't watched the news for years. I'm not a, uh, I, I really haven't. And then there was a certain time four or five years ago that I, I just, I almost felt like I had it to because there was so much change happening in such a high rate that I want to kind of be abreast of kind of what was going on. But I, I, you know, I saw how it changed me, but I also had to really modify how much I look at it. Now I'm back to not watching it because we can get it from so many other places and such, but yeah, it's, um, you know, I always tell my clients, you create your own reality, right? You create your own reality, however that reality exists for you and whatever choices and action steps you take is, is, is what that reality is about. You know, one of the concepts of the the 10 Shawshank lessons is that opportunities can be seen everywhere. You just have to look and you have to listen. Right. I mean, if you look at that movie, you know, here's a prisoner and he, he wants to build a library in the prison in 1947. And the warden's like, you can't do that. He said, well, I'll write a letter to the state for the funding. If you don't have it right. He writes a letter for how many years. And then finally they send him a check saying, please stop writing. Right. That goes back to, for me, number three, You've got to be relentless and you've got to be tenacious in your life, right? It took him 20 years to escape Shawshank Redemption you know, with a tiny rock hammer, right? He wrote one letter a week for years to get the books in the library. So we need to stay on course, find that support system, especially when we go through the grieving process, because you're going to have those peaks and valleys. This is why the two words exist in the English language. And so when you find yourself down the valley, you have that support system that can help you and take you by the hand to get you back up on the, on the hill or the mountain. (laughs) I've only told this once in my life. This is interesting, but I'm looking at number nine and that's practice random acts of kindness. So for me, you know, my mother was having cancer and I just had to do something like I, I love random acts of kindness. And, but I was insanely busy. I mean, I was 24 seven with her. I was casting films, you know, we had ups and downs depending on what was going on in the process of her cancer. And for some reason, I've only said this twice. I decided that once a week I would send money anonymously to a person that I found in the phone book. Because my mailbox was down the street and I picked up my mail there. And this is when you had, you know, you actually had phones that you put quarters in and you, you know, and I just, I remember, oh no, it was inside, it was inside the post office because I had to look up an address. And I just saw all these names of all these people. And I, so I created this letter saying, you don't know who I am. I'm synopsizing. You don't know who I am, you know, but, you know, I'm currently, you know, assisting my mother with cancer. You know, we're very hopeful again. I know that was in there. You know, I know this is not much, but I hope this brings a little sense of hope to your life. And I put in five dollars each time and i did that once a week for the entire time she had cancer and that was that was just a tool that i used for me it helped me be hopeful i was practicing a random act of kindness um it was something that i could do that was outside of being her primary caregiver but you know that, that's just what i did yeah another tip yeah exactly, <laughs> exactly is there anything else that you would like to share 
you know, I would just say, you know, thank you for all that you do. Again, if you want an intuitive reading, it's completely complimentary. I guarantee you that you'll have tools that you can take away from it. It's about 45 minutes to an hour. Just text me at 760-835-3327 voices. Um, my website is brentscarpo.com, B-R-E-N-T-S-C-A-R-P-O.com. You know, the book, The Red Balloons, coming out Mother's Day. I'm so excited about this. I've been working on this for 10 years. Um, it is going to be a life coaching book. Um, it's about the relationship between my mother and I. It talks about how we prove that there, in fact, was life after death. And if you're interested in seeing the Today Show episode, you just have to go to YouTube and put in uh, Brent Scarpo, The Today Show. Well, and I'll put all of that in the show notes as well. Yay. Well, thank you so much for everything. This was wonderful. I really appreciate you and all that you do. And I know it's really hard work doing this because I've been asked to do it. And I was like, no. I was like, I just, I know how much is involved. Maybe one day down the road, because I think it would be something fun to do. But I, you know, I've been on several and you're, you're great at what you do. And I just want to thank you for what it is that you do for, for me and for us and for all those that are going through the grieving process. Thank you. And thank you for sharing um, Absolutely, all that you've shared. And remember, when you unleash your heart, you unleash your life. Much love. From my heart to yours, thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please share it, because sharing is caring. And until next time, give and share compassion by being a heart with ears. And if you're hurting, know that what you're feeling is normal and natural. Much love, my friend. Thank you.